So you're thinking about a trip to Israel. What should you pack? What should you leave at home? And how can you prepare physically and spiritually? Well, that's our conversation coming up. With that, we say welcome aboard. This is The Land and the Book, a one-hour focus on the Middle East. Our host is the one and only Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, for anybody new to the program, what do we do in these four segments? Oh, John, it's so much fun. Uh, This first segment, we talk about what's been happening in the Middle East, and not just from uh, the news perspective, but from uh, God's perspective. Uh, The second segment, we interview someone uh, connected with the Middle East, someone traveling there, someone who lives there, someone who's ministering there. Uh, Segment three, people have questions about the Middle East, about the Bible. Uh, They can ask their questions, send them in to us. And in segment three, we answer questions from listeners. And then final segment, uh, we go someplace in Israel, take people to the land and open up the book and help them truly understand uh, what God's Word is saying, not just about the Bible, but uh, how it applies to their lives today. All right. And Charlie, you happen to be filling our guest slot today with 10 ways to get ready for your Israel trip. We're looking forward to that. Right now, a quick question. How do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it's sometimes kind of challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with someone from a Jewish background. Uh, Have you ever wondered how the uh, quote-unquote professionals do it? And to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and supplying you with tracks you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. Now, to receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. Okay. Well, let's look at our current event stories for the week. The turmoil over Israel's planned judicial overhaul continues. But curiously, Prime Minister Netanyahu's voice seems to be absent from the discussion. Charlie, why is he not speaking out and trying to help guide the debate a little more? Well, the answer, John, almost defies belief. Netanyahu is prohibited from getting involved because of the attorney general and the courts. Uh, Back in 2020, that's two governments ago, a conflict of interest arrangement was made between the courts and then Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, He was on trial facing several charges while still serving as the prime minister. And the agreement made back then barred Netanyahu from involvement in any matters that could impact his ongoing trial. Uh, The trial continues to drag on and Netanyahu is back as prime minister. Uh, The new government, which is far more right-wing, is pushing for a major overhaul of the judicial system. And while some of the changes might potentially help Netanyahu in his trial, other changes are tearing at the fabric of Israeli society. Mm. Now, both Netanyahu's lawyer and President Herzog have petitioned the attorney general asking her to allow Netanyahu to take part in proposed negotiations with opposition parties to develop a compromise to resolve the problem but the Attorney General denied both requests. Hmm. So the Prime Minister, the head of the government, and the one person with the experience and temperament to negotiate with all sides is barred from actually getting involved. The most he can do is encourage people to get together to talk, but he's not allowed to lead those discussions. Uh, The story actually illustrates some of the problems caused by the judiciary in Israel. Apart from Netanyahu's innocence or guilt, Some of the evidence allowed at his trial was done through the intimidation of witnesses by the prosecution and by illegally securing evidence without proper search warrants. The court allowed that, 
but won't allow the prime minister to work with all sides to craft a solution to a governmental crisis, even when it doesn't directly impact his trial. Now, one final point here, John. President Herzog is being a true statesman. He's trying to bring all the sides together to craft a solution to resolve the crisis. He understands the strategic importance of having the prime minister be part of that conversation. But in addition to the courts, those in the opposition in government are trying to score points at the expense of the current coalition. And in doing so, they're only making the rest of the coalition dig in its heels even more. Hmm. You know, I said last week, what's really needed is a behind closed doors meeting with the leadership from all sides. Barring the prime minister from being part of the discussion is a recipe for disaster. And right now, that's what's happening. Hmm. Iran has dramatically increased its military support for Russia in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Could Iran's involvement push Israel toward greater military support for Ukraine, or will Israel continue to remain neutral? You know, Israel's trying to walk a fine line in the war between Russia and Ukraine. They've supplied Ukraine with humanitarian aid, but they've hesitated to provide any direct military aid. And the reason is probably lost in most people in the West, but it makes perfect sense in Israel. Russia has a military presence in Syria, and Israel's fighting a war with Iran in Syria as well. Russia has threatened to restrict Israel's access to Syrian airspace, which would make Israel's attempts to stop Iran much more difficult, and it could bring Israel and Russia into direct military conflict. Uh, But now, Iran's involvement in the Russian war with Ukraine could push Israel into reevaluating its position. The key reason is Iran's decision to sell, manufacture, and even help run the missiles and drones Russia's using against Ukraine. Iran is gaining real-world expertise in drone and missile warfare, with Russia footing the bill. Iran's giving their own soldiers hands-on practice in using the technology. This also serves as an opportunity for Iran to showcase its drone technology to other countries. The UN sales embargo against Iran expires in October, and Iran appears to be in talks with up to 50 countries to sell them their missile and drone technology. Iran could profit financially while also making the world a far more dangerous place. Now, if Israel does agree to sell Ukraine defensive weapons, their new drone-killing laser system might be a top candidate. Another possibility would be their anti-missile technology like the David Sling system. Demonstrating such systems in action against Iranian technology could help blunt the sale of that technology to other nations while allowing Israel to demonstrate its own technological prowess. Uh, But such a decision would impact Russia in its war with Ukraine, and that could lead to Russia putting even greater pressure on Israel in Syria. Uh, Israel's faced with a difficult choice, but Iran's growing involvement with Russia might eventually force them to choose to support Ukraine in spite of Russia's threats. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, and we're working our way through a list of current event stories all based in the Middle East. Terrorist attacks against Israelis continue to increase in the West Bank and in Jerusalem. What in the world is driving this increase in terrorism? Uh, The key word being used by the defense experts there is incitement. Uh, The attacks are being launched by younger and younger terrorists, some as young as 13, And to an even greater extent, they're being influenced to do so by social media. The problem Israel's facing is they don't want to become like Russia or China or Iran and totally block certain social media platforms because that's a blunt weapon. You can't just block it for young Arab men in East Jerusalem or the West Bank. Uh, Such a decision would impact all Israelis using that particular social media in the whole country. The second problem is it wouldn't stop individuals. They just switch to another social media platform. 
Now, in addition to social media, some of the incitements coming from the far right uh, in Israel's own coalition, you know, their radical rhetoric just adds fuel to the fire. So what can be done? Well, some experts recommend a broad-based, multi-pronged approach. Efforts to tone down the rhetoric would help. So would steps to improve housing and job opportunities for residents of Arab East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And then a concerted effort to find ways to locate and block so-called influencers, those who are driving the hatred on social media. Now, there's no magic bullet to stop the violence, but some things can be done to help restore calm and peace. And we need to be praying for the peacemakers there right now. For sure, for sure. As the Turkey earthquake situation moves off the front page, some foreign countries, including Israel, are suspending their activities there. Is this a case of out of sight, out of mind, or are there other reasons for the reduction in help? Yeah, there's actually several reasons for the drop in aid and support. One is financial. Uh, Many private groups rely on outside donations to fund their activities, and when news reports from Turkey decline or are replaced by reports of other disasters elsewhere in the world, well, giving toward relief in Turkey drops off. But now, in the case of countries rather than private aid groups, the situation is more complex. Uh, Search and rescue workers came for a limited time to help search for survivors. But after 10 days or so, the chances of finding someone alive become far less likely. And at that point, their work is done and those groups return home. Now, unfortunately, rescue workers from Israel and Austria and Germany were forced to suspend their work early because of the security situation along the Turkey-Syria border. It just deteriorated. There were clashes between armed groups, as well as reported threats against foreign workers, including the Israeli workers. Local anger over the pace of rescue efforts and the presence of Islamic fundamentalist groups, including ISIS, created tension that made these foreign workers possible targets. Uh, Turkey had given Israel permission to bring their own armed security personnel But when they arrived in country, the security personnel were not allowed to have their weapons. Though Israel had to withdraw their rescue workers, they did leave in place a medical delegation to run a field hospital they set up. News reporting from that region will continue to decline, but that doesn't mean the crisis is over. And so hopefully the situation will stabilize to the point where the teams still operating in the region will be able to continue doing so. Uh, The need in Turkey right now and in Syria is great, and it is ongoing. And that's a summary of current events in the Middle East from the week. Maybe you're thinking about a trip to Israel, wondering what do you pack? What do you leave at home? How can you prepare physically and spiritually? That's the focus of our conversation with Charlie Dyer himself. On the other side of this break, our website is thelandandthebook.org. Ten ways to get ready for your Israel trip next. planning a trip to Israel. You've already started working on your passport and maybe you're thinking about upgrading your camera or phone, but how else can you really get ready? Coming up, 10 ways to prepare for a trip to Israel from somebody who absolutely knows. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, and I'm John Geiger. As we think about ways to prepare for a trip to Israel, what about some ways we can prepare to engage with our Jewish friends right here at home? Here's a thought. The moment has come. You've shared your faith with your Jewish friend, maybe for the third or fourth time. And of all things, they do want to pray. They do want to receive the Lord Jesus. What then? Greg Savitt, how do we lead the conversation? Well, if you get to this point, praise the Lord. Well done. I just like to go over the diagnostics of the person's faith, 
Uh, do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that believing him we have everlasting life, and that you're trusting him as their Lord and Savior? And if that's the case, there's no right A, B, and C. It just comes from your heart. And just ask this person to pray this prayer with you, and you pray the prayer. And after it's done, and ask him, do you understand that? And he'll say yes. What you need to understand is a couple things. This Jewish person hardly knows anything about his faith. All he knows is he loves Jesus, that he's died for our sins. I mean, he knows very little. That's why the most important thing at this time, once you get this person uh, receives the Lord, get him into fellowship with the church or Messianic congregation. You can continue to disciple them week after week, but the best thing they can get is in a faith community. And people that I've seen that have not been in a faith community, they usually lose their faith mm. in a couple of years. So that's number one importance. That's great wisdom from Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel as director of Jewish evangelism. It's segment two here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and like you, when I'm trying to figure something out, I like to find the best expert I can, the person with the most experience. And you know, when it comes to traveling to Israel, few have the experience of our own Charlie Dyer. Remind us, uh, how many times have you been to the Holy Land, Charlie? John, it's, uh, I think, over 100. I lost count, which is the sad part. And uh, the good part for me is, though, in just a few weeks, I'm heading again. So uh, what we're going to be talking about is something I'm working on myself right now. Okay. Charlie, of course, writes extensively on the Middle East. His latest book is called Experiencing the Land of the Book. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is directly or indirectly related to this very helpful book from Moody Publishers, Experiencing the Land of the Book. Now, before we start our 10 tips, Charlie, what about safety issues? Should people who have already put down a deposit on an Israel trip or are thinking about putting a deposit down, should they be concerned safety-wise? Your thoughts? John, what I tell people is there is some danger traveling to Israel, but once you make it to the airport here in the States, most of your danger is over. Uh, <laughs> our highways are the most dangerous part of a trip. I've been in Israel. In fact, my very first trip, a war broke out while I was there. I came back, read the newspaper accounts of the war, and uh, it had no relationship to what we actually saw. And we were, it was the war in Lebanon, and we were up on the border with Lebanon uh, just three days after that war started. So, uh, Safety is not a big issue. Actually, pickpockets are the big issue. Walking out in front of drivers is an issue. Hmm. And dehydration are issues, but uh, not what most people think. You know, terrorism is not the big issue. All right, 10 ways to prepare for a trip to Israel. We are going to cover a lot of ground here spiritually, intellectually, physically, financially, emotionally, and practically. Let's start with number one. You're suggesting prayer is a huge component. Yeah, and it's, sadly, it's the one that often gets overlooked. Uh, you know, we believe in prayer. Well, if you're planning on going to Israel, bathe that trip in prayer before you go. You'll be praying for yourself. You know, Lord, uh, prepare me to get intellectually and emotionally and spiritually what I need from this trip. Uh, pray for the group. You know, there's often uh, uh, to, to live above with the saints we love. Oh, that'll be glory. To live below with the ones we know. Well, that's another story. Well, <laughs> you're going to be traveling and in close quarters with some saints. Pray for them. Pray for unity of the group. Pray for your safety. Uh, my wife broke an ankle in Israel one time and... Uh, you just want to pray, Lord, uh, guide my steps. Mm. Uh, pray for your guide and driver. People don't think about this, but pray for those individuals and that you'll be a good testimony to them if they're not believers. And pray for physical safety, for your own health while you're there. Uh, but there's so many things you can be praying about. And if you're bathing it in prayer, I'm just convinced that God honors that and gives a great trip as a result. 
And Charlie, I know you're doing more than lip service here. We have been on trips with you, and you do pray in these ways. I think of those words, you know, we pray for our bus driver. Typically, it's Munir. Guide his hands every step of the way. So that's neat that uh, you're actually doing this. Prep item number two, read. What are we reading, Charlie? Well, I start with the, the Bible. You know, in fact, I start this way. Uh, get a copy of the itinerary, whatever trip you're on. Uh, get a simple map, mark up the map, but then start looking at those sites. Uh, look up what the Bible says about those sites. Uh, make a list of them, circle them on that map so that you can see them, and then find out what happened there. Uh, now, the Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land that uh, Greg Hatterberg and I wrote uh, kind of combines all the Bible passages in one place, but you don't need that book. Uh, the key is just finding a spot where you're going to be going and knowing everything you can know about that site, what happened there biblically, so that when you get to that site, you have kind of a quick reference guide that you can look at and remember what happened. Uh, that'll help you cement the sites in your mind rather than just being a, a bus tour. Number three, prepare physically. What are we, what are we talking about here? Now, Israel is a land of hills and valleys, and you'll be heading up and down most of them. So begin walking and uh, wear the shoes that you're going to be taking on the trip. Don't get a new pair of sneakers and then try and break them in while you're there in Israel. <laughs> you know, if you have stairs in your house, practice walking up and down the stairs. If you don't, uh, go to the mall and take the stairway rather than the uh, escalator. But a good goal is to be able to walk at least a half a mile at a reasonable pace without uh, wearing out. And uh, if you can push that more, that's better. I, my goal is to be able to walk about four and a half miles every day before I go to Israel. That's, I'm overachieving in that sense. But again, my goal is I want to be able to walk because I know it's going to be a physically demanding trip in that sense. Charlie, I can hear uh, some listeners saying, now hold on, that's, uh, that's a little bit outside my uh, comfort zone. All that walking and steps, I, I don't hardly do steps at all. Should that bar them from considering a trip to Israel? It won't bother them from considering a trip, but it could limit what they get to do on the trip. And, and I tell some people, you may not be able to make some of the, uh, the walks, and a good guide uh, will, will tell you how much to expect, and maybe even say to you, this is probably one you should avoid. Uh, but it's better to do 80% of a trip and do it safely and enjoyably rather than trying to push yourself too mm -hmm. far and uh, then stumble, fall, and get hurt. Uh, but the better you are physically, uh, the more you'll be able to enjoy all that the land has to offer. 10 Ways to Prepare for a Trip to Israel. That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book as we talk with Charlie Dyer, who's written the Moody Publishers book, Experiencing the Land of the Book. Preparation item number four, do a, a Bible study. Uh, elaborate. Yeah, well, one of the great things you can do is find some of the places you're going. Uh, for example, you're going to Capernaum. Well, then do a Bible study, check out a Bible concordance or look online and just read everything that happened in Capernaum. Or if you're going to the Judean wilderness, uh, pick up Isaiah 40 and do a study of Isaiah 40 so that you know what the Judean wilderness is or the Dead Sea, wherever it is you're going, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, just track everything that's around that sea. And uh, the more you know what's happening there, the more spiritually you'll be prepared to interact with what the Bible has said and gain the spiritual lessons from that site. Number five, work on what to pack. In this case, uh, less is more. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. They Thankfully, it used to be 70 pounds you were allowed to take, and people had 70 pounds and, and uh, brought everything in the world but the kitchen sink. Uh, now it's 50 pounds maximum, and that's for everything you need. So pack wash and wear. You know, get one day uh, clothing that you can, you can wash that night and be able to wear the next day or, or, or whatever. The, the less you have, the better you are. And uh, here's one other little tip. In your carry-on bag, 
take at least one day's change of clothing in that bag. Don't have it all in your suitcase, lest your suitcase get lost in transit and uh, you're left with only the clothes on your back. All right, I got two tips I want to throw in here, all right, real quick. I stuff a Ziploc full of uh, maybe some uh, Pepto-Bismol kind of tablets, aspirin, whatever, and that's in my little camera bag or pouch. You know, it's great to have medicine back at the hotel, but what if you're on the road? So even in my pocket, I've always got a few of those items. That's one. And number two, my favorite thing is I love these hand sanitizer wipes that come in a little metal foil packet. At the beginning of the day, I stuff four of those into my back pocket. And uh, you know, I don't carry a purse with that big jug of uh, hand sanitizer, but these little foil packets uh, work real well. You and my wife think along the same lines. She makes sure that she stuffs every little cranny in our suitcases going over <laughs> with those packets. You're listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined in the studio by Charlie Dyer, who's written the Moody Publishers book, Experiencing the Land of the Book. It's 10 ways that you can prepare for a trip to Israel. Continuing with number six, buy a notebook and journal while on the trip. Yeah, and this was uh, my very first trip. This was suggested to me, and, and I had never thought of it. It made uh, the greatest sense. Uh, what you want to do at the end of every day, you've seen all these things, sit down that night in your hotel room and write a one-page summary of the day. Uh, just real quick notes. What did you see? What Bible passages were discussed that stood out for in your mind? What seems unforgettable? You know, what, what was it that impressed you the most? Each day you'll be going along saying, this is unforgettable. By day four, people are coming to me saying, what was it again that we saw on day two? <laughs> by writing those down, by journaling your trip, you'll have something that will last you days, weeks, months, and even years later. It'll bring things back to mind that you otherwise would have forgotten. Number seven, smartphones, cameras. What should we do here to prepare? Well, first, make sure they're in good working order and make sure you have plenty of memory. Uh, people think, oh, I might take, you know, 15, 20, 50, 100 pictures, but actually they're going to take hundreds of pictures. And uh, if you take your camera along with you with that smartphone camera, don't forget your charger. We've had people <laughs> show up and by day two, they're, they're out of the juice and uh, desperately trying to find a charger. The other thing that when you're taking pictures, take establishing pictures at the beginning of each site. That is when you go to Caesarea, take a picture of the entryway where, the set, where it says Caesarea. And then you'll know that every picture that follows is of Caesarea. It's, a, it's just a great way to remember what the places are. If there's, si if there's maps there, take pictures of the maps. Yeah, that is huge. Uh, I'm guilty here, and that is a great, great tip. Thank you, Charlie. Very practical discussion today on The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer, 10 ways to prepare for a trip to Israel. Here's number eight. Talk with anybody who has traveled to Israel before, and what kind of conversation should we have? How will that benefit us? Well, what I would do is uh, say to somebody, if you've been to Israel, okay, knowing what you know now, what do you wish you had known before you took the trip? Uh, is there anything you would have read before the trip that... Uh, uh, you, you wish you had taken time to read. Uh, what surprised you on the trip? Uh, what do you wish you had packed? What do you wish you hadn't packed? It was just a, an albatross around your neck the whole mm. way. Find out from someone who's just been there or, or been there fairly recently what it is that worked and didn't work for them because that will help you know how better to pack and how better to prepare. Tip number nine, prepare financially, which means... Well, most trips don't include lunch. Some trips are all-inclusive, but most trips have breakfast and dinner, but you'll need to pay for lunch. What kind of souvenirs are you thinking of bringing back with you? Now, here's the other thing. Take a credit card and then clean out your wallet. You know, if you, most people have two, three, sometimes even four credit cards. You don't want to take them all lest something happened to your wallet and suddenly all your credit cards are gone. Mm. By the way, MasterCard and Visa are the two best credit cards to take to Israel. 
Discover card, which we use all the time here, it doesn't get used as much in Israel. So I leave my Discover card at home. I take a MasterCard. My wife takes her Visa card, and that's we each have one in, in our separate pockets. Uh, traveler's checks, some people used to take them. They're less useful today. They don't like them as much over there. But uh, just have a clean wallet with just your basic essentials and one credit card, and you'll be set. You mentioned souvenirs. It's one thing to have the money to pay for them, but you're also going to need the space for them in your suitcase. A lot of people want to pack to the gills, and that doesn't work so well with souvenirs. That's right. In fact, that's one of the great reasons for not packing heavily as you go, because uh, you know that that Ahava lotion and that olive wood <laughs> manger set are, are going are to add to the poundage when you head back home. Tip number 10, take a small Bible and a good pen, and... Yeah, and use them both. Uh, make sure that Bible isn't something that you pack away somewhere. You need it during the day when, when you meet a site and somebody's talking. Uh, open it up to the passage they're talking about. Mark it uh, so that you know it's there. Uh, that good pen, and by the way, that's, a good pen doesn't mean an expensive pen. It means a, a pen that's, uh, that writes well. Uh, I like those little uh, simple kind. You, know, you, you buy the, uh, the uh, in fact, mine usually are uniballs. I, I just get something that's simple like that. I carry two of them along lest one go dry on me. Uh, but I just mark up the Bible and I mark up my notes. I mark up everything I want. I mark up those uh, journals at night, have it all together, and uh, you'll be glad you did. You can type it up when you get home, but keeping those notes is so important. All right, a bonus 11th tip, Charlie. When you get back, could I suggest we don't fire hose our friends and neighbors with all 10,000 photos? Maybe just pick a few and share them rather than uh, fire hose people. Your thoughts? Uh, my initial mistake, I got home from my first trip to Israel and I made my family sit there for two nights watching uh, 36 rolls of, of uh, Kodachrome film on my trip and they were glazed over. Well, those are some tips for preparing for Israel from Charlie Dyer, who's been there a hundred times or more and has written Experiencing the Land of the Book from Moody Publishers, where he shares some great stories from some of those trips. Check it out, Experiencing the Land of the Book. Up next, a fascinating look at questions, yours on The Land and the Book. Thanks for hanging out with us today at The Land of the Book. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. If you're new to the program, this uh, third segment's about questions and answers, meaning what, Charlie? Uh, people have questions, and when they have questions, it drives us into the Word of God, and I love looking up the answers and finding the answers and sharing those answers with people. And by the way, you can be a part of that uh, with an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's what all these people have done that you'll be hearing about today as we answer their questions. I've got a question, though. How do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it sometimes can be challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with somebody from a Jewish background. You ever wondered how the uh, quote-unquote professionals do it? Well, to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods to present the gospel and also supplying you with tracts you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life in Messiah's prayer is that these tracts will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. To receive this helpful assortment of tracts, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, speaking of questions, here's one from Renee. She says, I'm trying to harmonize the birth accounts of Jesus, especially Matthew 2, verses 22 through 23, 
with what Luke says in chapter 2, verse 39. For example, Luke's account leaves out the side trip to Egypt and has Joseph, Mary, and Jesus going from the temple directly to Nazareth. But Matthew tells of the Magi and the time in Egypt, suggesting that Joseph intended to return to Bethlehem. Why might Joseph have considered taking up residence in Bethlehem? Would this be to shield Mary and Joseph from the wagging tongues? Well, the accounts, I think, can be harmonized if we remember that each writer only includes the details that paint the portrait of Jesus that God wanted them to paint. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah and the King of the Jews. That's why he has the Magi. That's his big focus. Who is this? Where's the new King of the Jews? Luke, meanwhile, presents Jesus as the ideal son of man. And so he focuses on the events around Jesus' birth, the journey to Bethlehem, uh, the shepherds in the field, the presentation of Jesus at the temple. And then he skips over to the presentation of Jesus at 12 years old in the temple. Uh, Luke is simply focusing on those birth narrative events with Jesus. And that's why he skips over the Magi and the uh, side trip to Egypt and simply has Jesus then returning to Nazareth following those birth narratives. Uh, but the reality is that uh, the, the two events can be harmonized. So you have the events connected with the birth in Luke chapter 2. Several months later, Matthew uh, records the visit of the Magi, and then they escaped to Egypt, and probably that took place for several months. And then Matthew ends with Jesus going to Nazareth with Joseph and Mary. Uh, Luke ends his birth narrative with Jesus going to Nazareth with Joseph and Mary. Uh, it's just each one skips over the events that aren't germane to the argument they're trying to make. Buddy says, I recently read a passage in a book that caught my attention. I'll paraphrase it. The passage said a person seeking Christ without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would be unable to find him by themselves, as this would be achieving salvation through works. It went on to say that those seeking and finding Jesus, regardless of how they had lived their lives, would be able to find him as long as they had the indwelling Holy Spirit. Any comments would be appreciated. Yeah, and I do have a problem with the way the individual is expressing that issue of salvation. Now, part of my problem is I believe the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. I don't know of any passage that says we're saved by God first having indwelled us with the Holy Spirit. You know, Romans 1, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he goes on and says it's a righteousness that's by faith. Uh, in Romans 3, he says the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, in chapter 5, he says we're justified through faith. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, by grace you've been saved through faith. So my point is, what God seems to be stressing is our way to salvation is by trust through faith in Christ. Now, I don't want to minimize the role of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit convicts the heart of the unbeliever and reveals the need for salvation. Uh, John 16 mentions that. Uh, he seals us as the guarantor of, of God's promised future redemption. And 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1 mention that. He gifts us for service at the moment of salvation. But I don't see in Scripture that the Holy Spirit indwells an individual prior to salvation, and certainly not in the sense that he indwells the believer following that moment of salvation. Charlie, I can envision somebody listening right now saying, whoa, and their head is spinning. And the truth is, as they listen to this station or maybe this podcast, you know, over time, they've come to realize they don't really know Jesus as their Savior. That's a Bible word. It means rescuer. And they're saying, can you just break it down real simple for me? What does it mean to be saved, and how do I get that way? How do I make Jesus in charge of my life? That's right. Let me tie that right with what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit right now may be saying in someone's heart, yeah, I, I do missing something. I, I don't have that relationship that you've been talking about. 
and uh, prompting the person to reach out. And it's, it's simple. You say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't make it to heaven on my own. I know that I fall short, and I believe your son died for my sins and then rose from the dead. And right now, I just want to trust in what he's done for me to save me. Lord, just make me right with you because of what Jesus did for me. And if someone is hearing that prompting and just prays something like that by faith, uh, they move from death to life and move into the family of God. Hey, two quick follow-up suggestions for you. If you'd like to talk with a volunteer right now, live, who would be glad to answer your questions and pray with you, call 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM. If you'd rather explore this on your own, that's great. Head to our website, thelandandthebook.org. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a link you can click there, How to Know Christ. Give that a click. There's a video there and some other helpful information, all free, just to help you know Jesus. All right, back to our questions here on The Land of the Book. Carol wants to know about the temple at Arad. Who built it and why? Yeah, and for most people are going, what, Arad? <laughs> Arad's a town in the land of Judah. It's in the south. They're actually a very small place. It was more like a military outpost, and yet they found a temple inside of it. Uh, that fortress guarded the main roads in the area, and I believe the people built the temple there at Arad uh, because it was easier for them to worship nearby rather than travel for three days to get to the temple in Jerusalem. So in one sense, it was built for convenience, but in another sense, it really shows the idolatry that was part of the kingdom of Judah just before the Babylonian captivity. They actually found in the Holy of Holies of it a standing stone, probably representing Baal. But it's an illustration of what Jeremiah was preaching about. Uh, in Jeremiah 11, he said, you Judah have as many gods as you have towns. And indeed, this temple in Arad is one example of the kind of things they were doing where they were trying to mix truth and idolatry together and uh, going against God in the process. Brian takes us to Judges 11. Jephthah defeated the Ammonites and subsequently sacrificed his daughter. Some commentators think Jephthah actually put his daughter to death. Others think it may simply have involved a lifetime of service, almost like a nun, and the daughter remained a virgin all her life. It's more comfortable to believe the second option here, but what are your thoughts? Well, as you mentioned, there are two possible options. And the first, which is the most gruesome, is that he offered his daughter as a human sacrifice. And when you read it at first, that's what it looks like it says. Now, those who believe that would say, yeah, that you read the text, and that's what the text says. Now, I have a problem with that, though. Uh, I really see several problems. In fact, uh, Jephthah made a vow just after the Holy Spirit came on him, it says in verse 29. And it's hard to imagine someone under the Spirit's control uh, saying, I'm going to offer a human sacrifice. A second problem, he says it's going to be a whole burnt offering. But in the Mosaic law, a whole burnt offering involved a male sacrifice without blemish. And uh, Jephthah, in this case, would be offering a female human rather than a male animal of some sort. And that seems to be a problem. And my third problem with the whole thing is, it says after uh, he comes back and sees his daughter come out, he allows his daughter to go and mourn her virginity for two months. And then it came about at the end of the two months, she returned to her father and did this according to the vow he'd made. And she had no relations with a man, it adds. Uh, so here's my problem. If he killed his daughter, I think the main concern wouldn't be that she died a virgin. The concern would be that she died. And uh, that phrase to me suggests there's something else going on. And that leads to the second view, which is the one I do hold. I think his vow was, the first thing that comes out my door, I'm going to sacrifice it to you. Uh, he was expecting an animal. Instead, his daughter comes out. And so he sacrificed his daughter in the way Hannah later sacrificed her son, Samuel. That is, she gave him to the Lord all the days of his life. And I think Jephthah gave his daughter to the Lord. And that's why I keep stressing that she hadn't known a man. She hadn't uh, had any sexual relations. She died a virgin. 
And as it also says, he had no other children besides her. So Jephthah's vow cost him his own line. Uh, His line died out when he gave his daughter to the Lord because then he had no offspring later on. Question, how do Orthodox Jews interpret Isaiah 53? Some identify it with Israel. Verse 8 in particular seems problematic. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, Orthodox Jews today interpret the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 to refer to the Jewish people who suffered at the hands of the Gentiles. Now, that interpretation does cause problems because the passage is clearly referring to an individual. I like the passage in Acts chapter 8. Remember, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading that passage, and he says, who's it about? And beginning there, Philip then teaches him about Jesus. And that's who the passage is really focusing on. Well, it's been great hanging out with this segment on the land of the book, but we're not done. No, one more segment. I love the devotionals. So many listeners uh, email us to let us know they do too. And if you've never been a part of one, you're about to next. So stick around for more here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. And why not tell a friend about us too? Thanks. For anybody who has ever visited the site of Capernaum in Israel, the foundational floor of the synagogue there that is said to have possibly existed at the time of Christ is just stunning. To think that you are right there where Jesus really walked, really taught is just amazing. Hey, welcome back to The Land of the Book. I'm John Geiger. But Charlie, Capernaum is also the site of your devotional for today? It is. Uh, We started a series last week. This is the second part of that series on the two women of Capernaum. All right, we're going to dig into that devotional. But first, here's a Holy Land experience, testimony from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land. Let's listen to what their impressions are. My name is Brad, and what has struck me the most about this trip has been the importance of names in the Bible. Um, Caesarea Philippi had a bunch of different names. I, I, I've researched, I mean, I, I, I know what they are, but they're not in my mind right now. But the importance of following through the different names from the Old Testament to the New Testament to give the flow of the Bible and to, to make it all fit together. And I've just it makes me want to go back and, and study the Old Testament names and find out where is that place? And oh, that's this New Testament name. So I just, that has just struck me throughout the whole trip is the importance of names. All right, thank you for that Holy Land experience. Well, speaking of experiences, when I think of Capernaum, I think, Charlie, of the time we were there and saw all these conies climbing all over the rocks there. I snapped, I don't know how many pictures we wasted on them, but they were cute and, and fun to look at. They are, and uh, that's, that's one of the unexpected pleasures when people get there. They suddenly realize what the Bible means when it talks about conies. Yeah. But today we're going to focus on two women, not on the conies. All right, let's listen to your devotional. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, and you know, we started last week on this two-part series on the two women at Capernaum, and last week we focused on the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. Now, that account was bookended by the story I want us to explore today. This story focuses on a young girl who began her life the same year the woman with the issue of blood had her life fall apart. Interestingly, we're never told the name of either woman, but we are told the name of this young woman's father, and that's where our story begins. As soon as the boat with Jesus and his disciples docked at Capernaum, it was mobbed by a crowd wanting to see and hear Jesus. Mark says, a large crowd gathered around him. And then from out of the crowd stepped one of the most prominent men of the town. His name in our Bibles is Jairus, but his name in Greek, Iaros, comes from the Hebrew name Yair, 
which happens to be the name of a relatively obscure judge from Gilead who led Israel for 22 years in the book of Judges. Like his namesake, Yair or Jairus had also risen to become a ruler, though in his case it was in the synagogue of Capernaum. Normally, individuals would have been bowing to Jairus in deference to his position. But right now, Jairus isn't focused on himself. He's come to seek out Jesus. Falling at Jesus' feet, Jairus started pleading for the life of his daughter. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. His heartfelt cry makes it clear he's in a race against time to have Jesus come to heal his daughter before it's too late. Matthew compresses the story into just a few verses, and in doing so, he reports that the ruler said, My daughter has just died. And while she hadn't actually died when he left the house to search for Jesus, she must have died almost immediately afterward. Two details make this clear. First, as Jesus began making his way to Jairus' house, some men arrived from the house with words that had to pierce Jairus' heart. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Their question actually speaks volumes. Likely, when Jairus ran from the house in a frantic search for Jesus, most saw it as an act of desperation on the part of a grieving father unwilling to face reality. The poor girl was in the final moments of her life here on earth, and her frantic father, unwilling just to stand by and watch her die, went in search of the impossible. Jesus had left town the day before, and no one in town was sure where he'd gone. And even if Jairus could somehow find Jesus, making it back to the house in time was hopeless. Even now they could hear the death rattle in her shallow, irregular breathing. When her breathing and her heart finally stopped, they went in search of Jairus to tell him the sad news. Amazingly, Jairus had managed to find Jesus, but it was still too late. Don't bother the teacher. There's nothing he can do. And by implication, you're needed at home to help with the funeral preparations. Now, I said there were two details that let us know the girl was near death when Jairus went in search of Jesus. The second is Matthew's observation that by the time Jesus arrived, the flute players were already there. Musicians were hired to help in the funeral ceremony following death. The fact that they were already at the house suggests they must have been nearby waiting for the inevitable. Other mourners had also started to gather. Mark described the scene inside the house as commotion, with people crying and wailing loudly. Ignoring the discouraging words of these messengers sent from the house, Jesus turned to Jairus and said, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Mark records Jesus' message in four staccato words. Stop fearing. Only believe. Faith, trusting in God and his word, is the action that will vanquish fear. Jesus ordered everyone else, the crowd and even his disciples, not to follow. Then taking Jairus along with Peter, James, and John, Jesus went to the house. When Jesus arrived and announced the child wasn't dead, the mourners scornfully laughed at him. They could see for themselves that she wasn't breathing. Her heart had stopped, and the color had now drained from her face. Jesus then ordered all the mourners to leave. Only Jesus, Jairus, his wife, and the three disciples remained inside with the dead girl. Reaching down to take the lifeless hand of the child, Jesus spoke two simple words in Aramaic, the common language of that day, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. Imagine the shock of those in the room when she opened her eyes, sat up, and started to walk around. 
I suspect she didn't get too far before she was smothered in the hugs and kisses of her astonished parents. The word used by Mark to describe their reaction suggests both amazement and confusion. What just happened? How can she now be alive? Tears must have flowed down their cheeks as they gazed into their daughter's eyes. Jesus then issued two commands to the child's parents. Don't let anyone know about this and give her something to eat. Now that second command suggests she had been languishing in her illness for some time, perhaps days. He brought her back to life, but her body now needed the nourishment it hadn't received when she was ill. His first command is one I find even more interesting. Don't tell anyone. Obviously, everyone who had been inside the house mourning would know something had taken place when the child and her parents came out to thank them and send them on their way. Matthew tells us that the news of this spread through all the region. Most likely, Jesus didn't want the fact he had raised the child to life to create too much of a sensation. Perhaps that's why he had simply said she was asleep when he first arrived, using a phrase that could have a dual meaning. Later, the disciples shared the truth of what had actually happened in the house, but the immediate focus was on the young girl being healed. Matthew and Mark each record Jesus leaving Capernaum after this miracle, likely to keep his ministry from becoming a mere sideshow. So what lessons can we take away from Jesus's encounter with this young girl? I see two. The first is the connection between the two women and the number 12 in these accounts. The woman with the issue of blood suffered for 12 years. The year her struggles began was the year Jairus' daughter was born. But then the roles reversed. The woman who'd been suffering was healed, while at almost the same time, the child tragically died. But Jesus was able to turn tragedy into triumph in both lives. Whatever you're facing right now, physical illness, personal tragedy, or even impending death, Jesus is the answer. You might not experience instantaneous healing or be raised from your deathbed, but Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. And someday every follower of Jesus will experience ultimate healing. In the ups and downs of life, keep your focus on Jesus. The second thing we can take away from this encounter is the message Jesus spoke to Jairus in his hour of greatest need. Stop being afraid. Keep on believing. We live in a dark and scary world. The daily news cycle churns out a never-ending supply of things to fear. But instead of focusing on those, focus instead on Jesus. Stop being afraid. Keep on believing. As God, Jesus knows all things and his timing is perfect, though we might not fully understand. Write out Mark 5.36 on a 3x5 card and place it at a spot where you can see it all day. And then, no matter what you're facing, focus on Jesus' words. Stop being afraid keep on believing. Boy, so very practical. Thank you, Charlie. Really appreciate that devotional. And as always, we point you to our website, thelandandthebook.org for information about today's program, past programs, and more, thelandandthebook.org. Our time is gone. For Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger. Thank you for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.